they're different activities with different definitions and that require different skill sets and have different timelines. So a lot of differences. But more importantly, in my experience, I've seen it's incredibly common that architecture firms focus all of their energy on the marketing, so on the creation of proposals and qualifications packages, and not nearly enough on business development. And this creates real challenges for firms. And colleagues who know me, who work with me here at SOM will recognize this slide, that this is the analogy that I use, that it would be like saying that you want to go on a road trip and then spending all of your time and energy picking out what car you're going to drive without spending any time thinking about where you want to go, who you want to come with you, and which roads you'll take to get there. Welcome, everyone, to Section Cut, our first ever conference dedicated to the stories of leaders who are innovating on practice operations. Welcome back. How's everyone doing? We're back on the firm stage for our final deep dive on this stage today. Next up, we have Eben Falconer from Skidmore, Owings, and Merle, also known as SOM for a conversation on operationalizing business development. Please join me in a warm welcome. Eben, how's it going? I'm being sucked into a room. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like the magic that happens around us is insane. I'm really pumped for your conversation today, and so I'll let you take it away. Great. Thanks so much for having me. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, so I'm really excited. So hi, everybody. I'm really, really excited to be here. My name is Eben Falconer, and I'm the Global Marketing and Business Development Leader at SOM. I thought it's useful to have a little bit about me just to give some context for where I come from. So I was trained as an architectural historian, but always with a really strong interest in contemporary professional culture. And I love working with architects, thinking about architects, and really understanding how they work. Before SOM, I was also at Big, Gale, GSAP, Stephen Hall Architects, MoMA, and ULI. And actually, GSAP is where I met George, which uh, has been a wonderful friendship that's grown out of that. And really, throughout my career, I've had a passion for bringing strategic thinking to architecture planning and design firms. And really, that means that I've actually spent a good portion of my career in practice operations. And one reason I'm really enthusiastic about this conference is because I get asked this a lot, like what skills do today's firm leaders need in order to succeed? And if you look at the standard curriculum for a lot of education programs, it would tell you this, that design or engineering expertise are all that you need. But all of you know, or you're here to learn, that it's much, much, much broader than that. So it's really exciting to see that, that the group over at Monograph has pulled together all of us speakers to think and share about our experience with these issues. And my expertise is here in business development, marketing, and strategy is where I live and breathe and love. And one thing that I've heard a lot through my career is that people think that business development is mysterious. So a personal goal of mine has always been to demystify it. And I thought it would be useful to actually take some time in this presentation to talk about defining some key terms. So what are those terms? Here are the ones that, that I, I wanted to share with you all today. So business development versus marketing, pipeline, doer-seller, proactive versus reactive, and go-no-go. No go. I hope that these aren't new terms to you, but I thought it would be good to shed some light on at least how I think about these. And this first two terms, business development and marketing, and they're often used interchangeably. And I'll, I'll say straight out that the way that I define it is different than some of my colleagues do and who have also have really good explanation as to why they define it slightly differently. So just qualifying statement, this is how I think about it. For me, business development is everything that we do to get work, including marketing. So it's an all-encompassing term. When I think about it philosophically, I think about it this way, that it's strategy plus storytelling and relationships. 
And when I think about it functionally, it encompasses a lot of different things that people do, sort of strategy and tactics, marketing and client relationships, research and market intelligence, partnerships and alliances, contracts and negotiation. So it really, it spreads out quite deeply into a firm. It's not just about something that one person does, even in a small firm. And when I talk about marketing functions, this is what I'm usually focusing on, about the sort of creation of really thoughtful, strategic marketing firm collateral and the the act of creating good strategic proposals and qualifications packages. So why does this matter? Why is it important to distinguish between the two? For one, they're different activities with different definitions and that require different skill sets and have different timelines. So a lot of differences. But more importantly, in my experience, I've seen it's incredibly common that architecture firms focus all of their energy on the marketing, so on the creation of proposals and qualifications packages, and not nearly enough on business development. And this creates real challenges for firms. And colleagues who know me, who work with me here at SOM will recognize this slide, that this is the analogy that I used, that it would be like saying that you want to go on a road trip and then spending all of your time and energy picking out what car you're going to drive without spending any time thinking about where you want to go, who you want to come with you, and which roads you'll take to get there. So maybe there are people whose idea of a fun road trip is simply sitting in a fancy car, but I don't think that that's the case for most of us. So that's why I really think it's important to talk about really expanded concept of business development. So another term that I care a lot about, I talk about it all day long, is, is pipeline. And so to go back to this idea of business development, what it is, is I'm a firm believer in that architects and engineers and designers should have ownership of a control over their destiny as much as possible. And one thing that I see really holding us back is from having this agency is a lack of understanding about their pipeline, their future work, and how to manage that pipeline. So when I talk to people about where their projects come from, I've always been struck by the passivity of the description. The client called us or this person referred us to a client or someone sent us an RFQ. And I don't believe for a second that the architects who say this to me are lazy. I know they're not. They're some of the hardest working people that I know. But it's sort of shifting into this sort of passive reactive mode that I think really holds us back. And so I'm going to use another analogy here. Obviously, you'll see that I love analogies and they tend to be kind of homespun. So if you were planning to bake an apple pie and you needed apples, how would you get them? Would you stay in your house and wait for an apple to show up on your front door? I don't think so. Would you say out loud, I'm so good at pie baking. I'm sure the apples will come find me. I don't think so. (laughs) Or maybe would you drive to an orchard and sit under a tree and wait for the precise number of apples to fall into your basket or into your lap? No. And this is, it sounds ridiculous because it is. You know, if you were pie baking and you needed apples, you would get a ladder and you climb up into the tree. You'd get one of these funny hook baskets and pull the apples down that way. You would climb up under your friend's shoulders so that you could reach them. I'm listing this out in detail because I know that you know how to get apples. <laughs> and of course, getting work as a designer is not as simple as apple picking, and it's definitely work. But it's also not as complicated as, we, as we're told, or as we start to think in our industry. So I think if we can all agree that the sitting under the tree model won't work for apple picking, I think we can agree that it also won't work for architecture or engineering or any of the design disciplines. Because again, what this really comes down to is forecasting. This is a chart that I really like using. It's from a, a woman named Maureen Broderick who wrote a book, The Art of Managing Professional Services. And it's a very simple chart. And you'll see here that it shows that most firms are good at forecasting their costs. So here it shows that that 68% of the people interviewed or the firms interviewed here said they were highly confident in, in forecasting their costs salaries, office rent, supplies, that sort of thing. But that confidence plummets when it's talking about forecasting revenue. So we go here now only 
12% were confident, highly confident in forecasting their revenue. And you can see just how much the scale, the scale has shifted. So all the architects that I know track their current work in some form. In fact, it would be absurd if you as a leader came to a meeting with your colleagues and said, that house that we're doing it, is that in schematic design or construction administration? Is Emily running that project or Kiana? And I know that's part of what you know, Monograph has great services for. So just as you track your current work, you also need to be tracking your future work. And this is where having a well, an organized and well-managed pipeline comes into play. So why do we manage and track our pipeline? We do it to be able to forecast, to stay organized, to show change over time, to identify trends, and to show the impact of our business development efforts. And so what is a pipeline? And it sounds maybe mysterious, but it's basically, it's a, to make it very, very simple, it's a list of all your potential projects, typically organized by what stage of the sales process they're in. But more importantly, it's where you keep track of activities to keep those projects moving towards you. And it could be as simple as a list. But I've encouraged, when I've worked within firms, when I've worked as a consultant, I encourage everyone to go into more detail. So here, what I've marked up on the screen here is a sample of a very, very basic pipeline. I just want to say, all the details in here are completely made up, including the fees. So do not use this as a reference for benchmarking fees or anything like that. But I'll walk you through this in terms of what I think is important to keep track of and why. So the first four columns here are the really the project details, the project name, the client, client contact location. These are pretty basic and self-explanatory. Status is the first one that we should talk about. It's not enough to say that our project is either ours or it's not ours. But this is where we're talking about what phase of that potential project is in which should determine what you're doing to move it closer to your balance sheet. I'm not going to go into great detail, or I guess I can on how I've phrased these, but um, I've just chosen these, these categories as what I've used as like a very, very baseline for a pipeline. So you have outreach. This is for people or organizations that you want to get to know. They may or may not have a project for you, but based on your research, you think at least they might be interested. Lead. This is when you know that there's an actual project there. The client may or may not know who you are yet. Pitch, this is when you're presenting to your, your qualifications to a client for a project. This could either be in-person or Lord knows in Zoom <laughs> or you know, an RFQ response. Proposals, when you're submitting a fee proposal. Negotiations, when you're negotiating the terms of the project. And then you either can close as one, congratulations, or close as lost. You didn't win it, but you're finding out why. And you'll see I've numbered these. The idea is that you're really moving things through the pipeline. Things go from one, they end up hopefully as number six, close as one, maybe as seven, close as lost. The next column here is about fee. So in the early phases, this is an estimate. But having this data is really essential for any kind of revenue forecasting. So combining this data with what you put under probability, which I'll get to a little bit later, and priority will also help you gauge the time that you should be spending doing business development for a particular project. So say you're looking at two potential projects that are equally interesting to your firm and equally likely to happen. If one is a $500,000 fee and the other is a $50,000 fee, I would make the case that you should be putting more business development energy behind the $500,000 one. Probability, so this is an estimate and it will change as the project moves through the phases. Basically, you don't wanna be spending tons of time chasing projects with low probability. And how you come up with this number is sometimes a little bit mechanical. Say you're one of five firms who received an RFP, then you can put very comfortably put that probability at 20%. Other times it's more on instinct. One thing I just have always told people is don't put everything at 90%. Also, don't put everything at zero or 10%. Sometimes we have some pessimists, but I would say generally I see people overestimating. And while it's good to be optimistic when you're talking about forecasting, you also just want to be realistic. 
Priority is one that is a really interesting because this often, I think, gets forgotten. And because we spend so much time about thinking about how to get our clients to like us that we forget ourselves. Do we like them? Do we want this project? And this is particularly important when you're trying to break into a new market. How are you prioritizing this business development work? And just, again, I can use very basic. You could do it one to 10. I did it very simple, high, medium, and low. Again, the idea being that you want to level set your energy towards either things that, are, that you really, really want and are high likely to get. Start date. This is important because you want to be aligning your business development activities with resource planning. Notes. I always say notes as minimal as possible because it hope, what you're really wanting to do is get those other fields filled out and notes can be something super, super simple. And that frankly, if you find yourself putting a lot of things in notes, you might want to think about creating another column for yourself. Person responsible. So this is another one that I think often gets left off. Just as you never run a building project without a project manager, each potential project should also be managed by one person. Recognizing, of course, it's, it can be a team effort to bring the work in, but who is running point? Who is project managing the this business development work? And next steps. And this is another one that often gets left off because this is where pipeline management will live or die. And this is where agency really comes in because this is about where you're writing down what you can do to move the project closer to fruition. This is basically your running business development to-do list. So together, this information will make the job of pipeline management like infinitely easier and will allow you to build more agency for you or your firm. And I'll say that over the last decade, even huge changes in the last couple of years, there's been an incredible improvement in systems called customer relationship or client relationship management systems, CRM systems that track a firm's pipeline and you can link it to contacts databases, you can link them into your, your accounting software. I'm not going to go into great detail about these tools, but I would say outside of the architecture industry, just generally speaking in business, Salesforce is the leader in this field. And I would say it's a great option for larger firms, but they're expensive. So it's good that there's also a number of smaller, less expensive competitors, HubSpot and Pipedriver too, that I've seen people use as some success. So I would say anyone thinking about taking on, like starting to use one of these, start again, if you're a smaller firm, start with the list. And then move into using these systems when you find the list isn't working for you. Because they, these will really help smooth the process and mean kind of less maintenance. Um, and they really help to visualize and manage your pipeline. The next term is doer-seller. And in other industries, it's often called seller-doer. And I, I was having a really fun conversation with one of my colleagues who asked me, like, why do you call it doer-seller? And I said, because I think it actually reflects more accurately how architects, designers, and engineers see themselves. They see themselves as architects first and sellers second, sometimes a very, very distant second, which is problematic. That's why I flip it. I don't say seller do when I say do or seller. But this is what it looks like in practice. And stock photos didn't have a hard hat or pencil in her hand, but I imagine that this probably feels familiar to a lot of you. And one classic idea of the doer seller is the rainmaker. We see this concept a lot in our industry. And in my opinion, the idea of a rainmaker, I think it's it can be very strong, but it can also be anachronistic, unsustainable, and limiting. And so at the risk of using business cliches, I often say that I want us to think about business development as a team sport. And of course, there are team sports. Those of you who've been watching the Olympics like me, we know all our team sports these days. There's team sports where everyone is doing the same thing. So everyone is pulling their oars the same way. But I actually think that we're talking about something else. In my concept of business development and team sport, everyone has a role to play. There's distinct skills and strengths and a way to contribute. So you have people who are adept at growing, maintaining networks, people who are excellent at pitching and public speaking, people who are skilled negotiators, people who are fantastic listeners, people who are adept at building really strong, long-term trusting relationships. We don't all need to be perfect at everything, but we do need to know where our collective strengths lie. So returning to the doer-seller model, I also think it's really important to be aware of its 
weaknesses and its strengths. So here under strengths, you know the portfolio, you speak design, the client is meeting the team or the person that they will likely be working with. The weaknesses are also really important. And I don't have more weaknesses on here to cancel out the strengths, but I just think we have to talk about them. And the first two are the most important bandwidth. If you're a doer seller, most of your time is probably spent doing. And the doing is probably why you got into the industry. Most people I know who are architects got into the industry because they love to design buildings or design or urban design. Like they didn't get into it because they got excited about selling. So recognizing that most of their time is going to be spent on projects says, okay, how much time do we have left over? The other aspect is competency. Again, most people got into architecture, I'll just use architecture as an example, because they love doing architectural design, maybe they love project management. They probably didn't get into it because they love selling. So that kind of disconnect is one that I think we just have to talk about. There's a couple of other weaknesses that I think I would put down as much, much less challenging, but still challenging that sometimes you can have an eat what you kill model that can minimize motivation to pursue firm-wide goals or pursuits. There can be a lack of focus on medium and long-term business development. That comes out of the, the bandwidth issue and a lack of transparency about the process and pipeline. That's particularly the case when you go with a, with kind of a rainmaker models that no one else knows how that person brought in the work. So I'm not here to tell us or this audience here that we should abandon the model. I just think we have to be eyes wide open about what this model does for us and what it doesn't do for us. And generally speaking, I think there are four kind of versions of the doer seller model in our industry. And I'll go through them just high level. The first is really what you see with very small firms. Like maybe you've just gone off on your own. The founder is, it does all the business development. The founder is also at that point doing all the design work and all the office management and all the invoice sending. So, you know, perhaps it feels very familiar to you. The founder is doing all the business development and everything else. Model two, founder plus other leaders are doing the business development. And this, you can see, this is what comes with growth. It's not just the one person who started the firm who's doing it, but they've brought in some other people alongside them. Model three is when you add the addition of, let's say, maybe usually a non-client facing marketing staff. And you'll see that one, two, three are really about a shift or generally follow the uh, path of a shift in size. But there's another one that is not necessarily correlated with size. You don't see, I don't necessarily see firms go from three to four just because they've grown, it's usually a, a different change. But number four is when you have a marketing staff that actually becomes more client-facing and shifts into more client-facing business development activities. Kind of what are the points at which you move from one to the other is a really good conversation to have. We don't have enough time to go into that detail, but being aware of what might be next for your firm is really important. But most importantly, it's worth remembering that everyone should be doing business development. And one reason why is you look at some of the stats around the cost of getting a new client, 6 to 12% of gross sales is what's generally shared in our industry, whereas the cost of getting a repeat client is 1.5% of gross sales. So basically, it takes you less work to get a repeat client than a new client. So that's why it's really important to have that broad conversation about how business development isn't solely the responsibility of one founder or a marketing person or, or this little group. Everyone actually has a part to play. And as I mentioned, many architecture and engineering firms use that doer-seller model. And one thing that I've seen is, is that you can't just tell your whole firm to do business development. So what happens if you tell your whole firm to do business development without any guidance, parameters, or training? You're likely to get one of these three outcomes. They do nothing. They say, uh-huh, you told me. I don't know what that is. And I went back to designing my building or managing my project or sending out that bill. They are random. I think I have a cousin in Arizona who needs a house. I'm sure maybe I'll just call her and see if we can do a house, even though we don't do houses. That kind of random business development, not helpful. Third is they spend all of their time on RFQs. And that means like, oh, an RFQ came in, or we saw 
and the city posted it, it's a project we want, I'm gonna spend weeks of my time really, really nose down on that. And that is the end of my business development activity. So this is why it's incredibly important that firm leadership be clear about what the vision, the goals, and the desired outcomes are and support that through consistent conversations and training. And I guess as a quick sidebar, I'll, I'll pause here because I get this question a lot. Is like, when, when should I hire a marketing or business development person? And I have a couple of moments that I think starts to usually starts to kick off. When you can afford it, I think it's important to recognize that this is an overhead discipline. So maybe you can consider a consultant first. When you need the support, I generally, as a rule of thumb, I start to get this question when someone's firm has hits around 15 people, uh, I'd say maybe 10 to 20 people, if I'm being broader, that they start to need that help. Also, when you find the right person, I will say that sometimes when people send me job descriptions for marketing people, it is a little bit like they threw everything but the kitchen sink at it and they're expecting and they're going to pay them peanuts. So don't do that, but also recognize that if you find the right person who could really help your business grow, grab them. Uh, and I would say generally, you know, biggest rule of thumb is maybe when the business development work outpaces your ability to do it. The one thing that's super important to remember is that do you should be not be hiring a marketing and business development person with the intention of never thinking about it again. Because as we said at the top, everyone does business development, especially the leaders. So there's another key term. I threw it out there a little bit in, the, in that previous section, but reactive versus proactive. So if we were in person, which would be lovely, I would do this with a show of hands or a call on someone that say, is sitting by the phone reactive or proactive? I think we can all agree that it's reactive. Is presenting at a conference reactive or proactive? Definitely proactive. And here's my trick question, but those of you who have been listening carefully in the previous section might already know the answer. Working on an RFQ or an RFP. I actually argue that this is reactive because at this point, the project has already been very well defined and you're still very much competing with everyone else who's found this RFP or received it. And if those of you who work in public projects know, once the RFQ is out, you're actually usually not allowed to contact anyone with the client organization. So you really miss that window for relationship building upstream of the RFQ going out. Instead, you're only relying on your ability to tell a convincing story through marketing materials, which while totally possible, is much harder. Your competitors might have already you know, been upstream having those conversations with the client. And now you're just having to make your pitch through materials where they've already started to build that relationship. So if some of those examples of reactive business development are picking up the phone when it rings, having a website, I say that is reactive because it's, it is a bare minimum at this point, or just doing RFQs, RFPs, and RFIs, you know, what are some examples of proactive business development? So tracking projects before they're tendered, pre-teaming strategically, presenting at conferences, creating and maintaining client target lists, researching potential clients, building a network of trusted consultants, writing a firm newsletter, thoughtful and meaningful social media, pitching press stories, warm calling potential clients. This is a friend and I were doing a version of this presentation last year and I had originally written cold calling and we were like, no, that's not right. This is really, it's about cold calling is very painful and awkward and even someone like me who's an extrovert, I don't like it either. So the idea of warm calling is when you already, someone's made a, an introduction for you and you're following up on it, or you're, you've done some research and you know that they're going to be interested in what you're selling. That's the kind of warm call as opposed to just, you know, going through the list of developers in a phone book and, and, and just dialing and seeing what happens. So though that's a non-exhaustive list of ideas of proactive business development. So I think this is my last term. I've lost track. Defining some key terms. Last one is go, no go decision. And this is really a basic list of questions that I think are a foundation for any go, no go decision making process. One, are we able to deliver the work both from a competency and capacity standpoint? Two, is it in a location we are allowed to work and can work? You know, we work within an industry where licensure matters. 
can we work there? Three, have we done this type of work or do we have relevant experience? Four, are we a known entity to the client? Do we have a relationship with them? Five, do we have time to pursue it meaningfully? Six, would pursuing it mean not doing business development for more low-hanging fruit? This is one that I think trips not enough of us think about and talk about that, the opportunity cost of spending time on, say, an RFQ. Seven, do we have the right teaming partners? Eight, are the construction costs and fee, if known, viable for us? So this, again, is a, I would say, is like the bare bones of a start for this. Any firm with their salt has developed more market-specific criteria. We have these conversations at SOM all the time. And as a leader, it's, it's really worth you asking, do I know what our criteria are? Does the rest of the leadership know? And if the answer is no, then you have some work to do to clarify it and to make sure that anyone involved with business development, really at any level, understands and internalizes the criteria. Because again, if we're saying that everyone is involved with this, we don't want to have everyone out in the world just bringing home any old lead. My cousin in Arizona wants to do a house. We don't do residential, but I think that's something we're interested in. No, they should be clearly be able to say, well, we don't do single family residential. It's not a project for us. But we really want to have everyone who's out in the world have a sense of what's a good opportunity for the firm and what isn't. So that is the end of my slides. I told George I wouldn't, I would get through them quickly. I'm a fast talker and I wanted to leave time for questions and conversations. So with that, that's the end of it. And then I can take a breath and have a sip of water. Oh, wow. I mean, if anyone was curious about what, what, what it means to do business, I think you just did a, a master class on that too. Okay, so we do have a question. It's from Giordano Hernandez. When negotiating a potential project, does community development play a role? Is there a best practice around that that you've come across or some, some sort of strategy that you've taken when it comes to that? Is she asking when negotiating a project, like whether our the firm is going to do it, does the client's commitment to community development play, take a matter in terms of how we negotiate or how we choose projects? I think in the context of this, it might be a little bit big. I mean, I think if Giordano wants to write in the chat, we can kind of pick it up. Okay, so your trajectory has been basically going up to larger and larger organizations, and now you're at one of the largest <laughs> organizations. And I'm sure for you, you must be a very interesting point because a lot of this moving to everyone being a business development person or just, you know, actively being proactive in that approach is is one thing at the scale of insulin. It's another thing, to, as how you described, it's more like baseball. Everyone has a role in it. How many employees is SOM at this point? 1,200. <laughs> 1,200. What kind of framework are you thinking through to help you? Is it, you know, regional? Are you starting off kind of like geographically? Because SOM also has several offices around the world, right, at, at this yep. point. I'm sure that the complexity of what you talked about today is actually like even, you know, exponential at the, at the stage you're at. It's much more complex. I mean, the good news is it's lots of capable, excited, willing hands and brains. So that makes my job a lot of fun. Not, you know, great team within the marketing business development team. Really fun getting to know the rest of the firm. I should also say I started in August. So I have the pleasure of being virtually onboarded. And I, it's amazing getting to know a firm through a Zoom environment. I've been in our New York office and it was wonderful to realize that my colleagues have knees and then you learn how tall people are and, and you can give them a hug. Total sidebar. That wasn't answering the question, but it is much more complex at the size of the firm that, that SOM is. But it's also, we also have a lot of resources and there's a lot of excitement about what we're trying to do, a lot of enthusiasm. And I would say maybe to go back to the question, maybe it's better to take an example from being a smaller firm, I mean, there was one firm where I worked where we actually had that really specific conversation about people's strengths. 
I think also it's really easy because most architects and designers and engineers aren't trained in business development. It's really easy to, I think, to overly focus on weaknesses. Maybe it's because I'm like a naturally optimistic person that I, that also doesn't sit well with me, but we did an exercise where we were working with the leadership to identify people's strengths. And we actually took the business development process and, and divided it up into four different uh, kind of chunks. So kind of like people who feel very comfortable in the being out in the world, building and maintaining networks was one group. There were people who were incredibly strong at pitching. There were people who were incredibly strong with negotiating. And there were people who were incredibly strong at building and maintaining relationships through projects. So we asked everyone, this is a group of really 15, to identify, self-identify where they were most comfortable. And then we put a series of questions to them about scenarios. How do you respond in this scenario? How do you respond like to the, the good negotiators? How do you respond when the client says, it's too expensive, what next? And we had them respond to that and basically then come back to their larger group and say, this is how we handle these tough situations. And it did two things. One, it emphasized people's strengths. Again, I think people, we need to build confidence in our doer sellers that they do have strengths. They may not be good at everything, but they, there is probably a place or places where they are naturally quite gifted. So build up confidence in that strength, but also to turn to each other and say, okay, I might not be the most effective pitch person, but Joey is, and Susan's fantastic at negotiating contracts. So like, let's put our heads together and see, you know, how can we win this? How can we win this work? And so I think that kind of collaboration is really important. Again, because I personally think the idea of a rainmaker is I don't think it's a good model. And so how can we help more people become part of that process and not think that they have to be future rainmakers with all of that pressure, but recognize that they're part of a team. So again, not an example from SOM, but I think it's frankly relevant to firms of all sizes, including SOM. Yeah, I think that's like the systems involved to just be able to do that. That's at the scale of SOM, I'm fascinated by because it's like, again, to your point in the presentation, like that's one thing, but then it's all about the training. And I think the no-go slide and how you talked about how, you know, this is just st table stakes, essentially. Every market has a whole different uh, way to look at this. You know, that from a leadership perspective, understanding and be able to kind of help teams develop those nuances for regions. I mean, I know from my experience at WeWork, it was something similar Every working with global teams, like everyone had a very even standards, right, for design. How they operated was very different and unique. So uh, it's exciting that you get to work on that. I have some more questions here. Okay, so from Leah Bayer, how do you handle timing proactive BD? Too late and we don't have enough work. Too soon, mm -hmm. too much, and we can't take the great projects it leads to because we're a smaller firm. How do you approach timing? A really good question. I'm going to respond at a bit of an angle, and I hope I get my percentages right. There was a great statistic I came across once, and I think it was actually from when I was at GSAP, I was involved with the development group, the fundraising group, and there were some wonderful fundraisers there. I learned a ton from them. And someone shared that if there's 100 people out in the world, like 100 potential clients, 95 of them are information gathering. Two are looking for answers on specific solutions, kind of like, you know, my roof is leaking. How can you solve that? And what do I have left? Three are ready to buy services. So the vast majority of them are not actually ready to buy your services in that one moment. So that is actually could probably be incredibly depressing for someone who's like, I'm going to sell. I'm ready to sell today. Are you ready to buy? Most buyers are not actually ready to buy when you're ready to sell. And what we actually need to be doing is planting always lots of seeds 
And that's really about building relationships, being present in the market, having a network you can turn to, having that network know you so that when they are ready to buy, they think of you first because you've become top of mind for them. So I'm not sure if that exactly answered the question, but timing, you're never going to aim right. Like if you wait to pitch to them when they're ready to buy, it's just not only is it a small window, your chances of hitting that window are very, very small. So don't wait, basically. Yeah, it's probably has to do also with your pipeline, a part of the presentation where you probably have to understand, you know, that hundred people, right? Who are they? Is part of the first question. Do Can you find out who they are such that you then know back into it and be like, okay, can I build relationships with these hundred people? Let's say if it's a specific market that you're dealing with and how do I build relationships such that at your point, right, you say top of mind for them so that it doesn't, there's hopefully not a mismatch down the line where like you don't have enough resources on your team. You've sort of been anticipating it because you have that, to your point, that confidence interval, right, per person of like, you know, are they warm? Are they hot? Like, where are they, you know, in their own process? Do they have any products upcoming? But developing that system is likely critical. Definitely. It is hard. Like it is one of the hardest things, I think, especially for smaller firms where a big project, you boom, the project ends, you bust. Like that kind of boom bust feeling of business development is really, really painful. It's not going to solve it perfectly, but having a a better understanding of your pipeline, knowing what's likely to land, when it's going to land, how can you time that with resources You're never going to become an oracle. It's never going to predict the future for you, but it will make you more comfortable in doing that forecasting and making better guesses, basically, better estimates. Yeah, we have a great comment here from Evan. Such a good point. It really ties into the concept of pipeline coverage ratios, dollar in the pipeline, dollar revenue forecast. Yeah. I have like a more extended version of that pipeline conversation or presentation that we've done in-house quite a bit where I show like the sales funnel. And it's basically, I tell them like, you're never going to have more at the bottom than you had at the top. You're never going to have more projects you win than leads. So know that it's going to go in this shape. So the size of the pipeline matters. If you only have five things at the top, best case scenario, you win five and no one wins five. You're probably going to win one. So if you want to be winning 10, you probably need to have a hundred at the top. I mean, this is very, very rough numbers here. No, but absolutely. I mean, back to your stats, right? Like 100 to like two people maybe convert. This is an interesting one. Do you integrate ESG or CSR goals into the go, no-go frameworks now? Would you see it as a quantitative or a qualitative analysis at this point? Absolutely. I mean, if you're asking about SRM, absolutely. I mean, particularly because we are really, really committed to being stewards of our buildings, of our planet. So like, you know, carbon neutrality and our clients' commitment to that is super important to us. Our own commitment to it is something we want to uphold. In the question about qualitative um, versus quantitative, I think it's worth striking a balance between the two. You know, uh, there are times when I see firms or people try to set scores for things and, oh, it has to, you know, we have this internal ranking on potential projects and it has to score above an eight out of 10 for us to go after whatever the metric is. Couple of things happen when you do that. Either people fudge the numbers because <laughs> they really want to do the project, which then undermines the whole system, or everything ends up being an eight, or nothing ends up being an eight. If you're going to commit to a quantitative approach to it, you really have to think through what your criteria and your scoring is. I would more advocate for a, a mix of both. Like maybe you have a quantitative one, but there it, it's one that you go back and check how you know how you're setting the score. And then if you see th- if you have things that you said yes to, and everyone's like, why did we say yes to this? This project is terrible. Like whatever it is, you need to have that feedback loop. Alternately, if things say, why did we pass on that? That project is amazing. Again, there's something probably wrong with the way that you set it up. So you give yourself and your firm that space to think and have that conversation about what it is that you want to do. 
This has been an amazing conversation. We're at time. I just want to thank you so much for that amazing presentation. I think someone said in the chat that it was the most no BS <laughs> presentation, <laughs> no BS talk on BD they've ever seen. So uh, that's a testament. That's probably a good thing to hang your head on. That is exactly what I'm aiming for. So I'm glad it came through. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks um, for having me. Good luck with the rest of the day. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.